Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. If you want to go ahead and take your Bibles out and make your way to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, that's where we're going to be camping out today. It is uh, it's good to be back. I hate that I had to miss you guys this, this past week. Um, the McCrary family was out because we had COVID. Uh, just like everyone else in Huntsville right now. And uh, we, we hated to miss, but we are so glad to be here. We feel much better. Uh, it's good to be back. I want to say thank you for uh, those of you that took care of us last week, delivered lots of things, and it made our lives so much easier as we were trying to wrestle the two girls down. So uh, we're very, very, very thankful for that. Um, it is good to see every, all of our college students that just returned. Or, uh, this may be your first week back. It's so good to see you. Um, and then everyone just together. Uh, I know it's been a weird week, but there is nothing like being together on a Sunday. And so as we uh, uh, begin a new year, I just want to share with you just one or two things real briefly uh, before we dig into the Word. I know, uh, even as we came in this morning, uh, you probably know of a church member or you probably have a friend or just someone that that's either has COVID or they got exposed to COVID. It's just going around right now in, in Madison County. And so one of the things I would love just to encourage you is just to embrace uh, the ministry of care, uh, just caring for others in this church family and even the, your neighbors and your coworkers and those around you. And so it's important not just to um, think about uh, individuals that are sick, but also to actually just actually check in on them and see how they're doing. Uh, it's a treasure to have uh, true friends on challenging days. And so I, I just want to challenge you as we go into the next few weeks. We will have more folks that, that either get sick or they get in a position where they have to be at home. And so I just want to challenge you to go above and beyond to care for them, to pray for them, deliver them some soup, and let them know that you are available for them. I want to challenge you to do that. Then secondly, I want to remind you as we begin a new year, I'm not just about the ministry of care, but the ministry of attendance. Uh, to be active and engaged in this church family on the Sunday morning. Um, as much as I loved being with my family for a week straight in our house without leaving at all, we did reach a point where by the end of the week, I thought we were going to go crazy because we couldn't go outside. And like, you can only watch Harry Potter so many times before you got to do something different. And so uh, that's why on this morning, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, that we get to be together. Um, I, I love a church live stream. I think those are helpful. But my goodness, it is not even comparable to actually getting to come together with the saints on God's day. And so as we begin a new month and a new semester, I just want to encourage you, uh, if you're sick, you can be home and rest up and heal up. But let's encourage one another to worship together on Sundays, as Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembly, chapter 10, verse 25. And let's commit to being together, even despite the challenges of what's happening around us. Um, so I want to encourage you with those things. I also want to encourage you with this piece of good news uh, as we get started this morning. Um, if you hadn't been here the past few weeks, one of the things we announced a couple of weeks ago is by, the God, by God's grace and his providence, the city of Huntsville approached us and they asked if we would be willing to become a warming center for the homeless. When the city of Huntsville goes more than 24 hours uh, being under 32 degrees, um, they asked if we'd be willing to open up our education building to house those and give them a place to be, to be safe and warm during the challenging uh, time. And so 
over this past week, we got to do that for the very first time. And we got to take care of 41 folks that were without a home uh, during the cold storm. And so can we praise God for that? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And so many of you guys were helpful for that. And so I'm very, very grateful that we got to be a part of that. And so if you want to be a part of that ministry, as we get to care for folks in our neighborhood and around the city who are homeless, uh, just let me or Justin or someone on the team know. And as we get those calls from the city, we will continue to answer that and be able to serve the folks in Huntsville. And so very, very excited about that. Uh, some good news um, in a wild time. Today, as we go through the Word, we're going to navigate what I believe is one of the most dangerous sins uh, that, that all of mankind faces. I've watched this particular sin uh, devastate home after home and church after church and person after person because of its pervasiveness and its deception. And so what we're going to talk about today as we continue through Ephesians is we're going to talk about sexual sin. I don't believe that's shocking to anyone that that's what I say, that is one of the most dangerous sins, dangerous things out there. And it's not because that's brand new information, but you have probably seen it affect someone around you or even yourself personally. And so as we prepare to tackle this topic, here's what is going on uh, probably in this room. You may be here this morning and you may have a varying degree of sexual brokenness, whether that's from the oppression that comes alongside sexual sin, the addiction to sinful rhythms and behaviors. It's destructive. See, the call of sexual sin at first, it seems attractive, it seems inviting, it seems beautiful, but the aftermath of it is like a tornado that has gone through someone's home and it leaves no prisoners. You may have friends who struggle with sexual sin. You may be discipling someone who is navigating sexual sin. You may be someone who's on the precipice of battling the temptation of sexual sin. Whatever it may be, this is what I want to do today. I want to, number one, I want to warn you, because I believe that's what Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 5. But then, number two, I want to help you. You need to understand how serious this actually is, but you also need to understand how serious God is about leading you through the midst of sexual sin and temptation. See, isn't the 23rd Psalm so appropriate for a conversation like this? Where David writes, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and some of you may feel this way today when I'm talking about this particular thing, God is with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. He is with you. And so, yes, it is true that as a Christian, you will walk through dark times. You will walk through valleys. You may be walking through sexual brokenness and sin right now, but you are not walking alone. The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, he's with us. And he's with you. And so I want us to look in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning and read this passage as Jesus teaches, as Paul teaches us, what it looks like to walk with him. So look at chapter 5, starting in verse 1. <coughs> verse 1 says, Therefore, 
Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So let's pray together, and then we will walk through this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you for the genuine care you display to us as you warn us about this particular sin. As you teach us to walk in love, I pray that we can see this foundation of purity and integrity and that you would write it on our hearts. And that today, if there's anyone here that feels like they are enslaved to any of these particular sins, that, God, they would find freedom through your son, Jesus. So, God, we just commit ourselves, we commit this time to you, and we ask that you would move in us as we walk through this passage. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. So, as we continue on through this walk in Ephesians, Chapter 5, we're on the home stretch. <clears throat> and so if you haven't been here, maybe this is your first time. Over the past few months, we have been walking through the book of Ephesians. And so the way Ephesians is broken down is that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And the first three chapters teaches us about who God is and what he is like, what his characteristics, his attributes are. And so we see this in the first three chapters of Ephesians. We see that God is a loving God. We see that he is a mer merciful God. We see that he is full of grace and that he possesses the power to take someone who is spiritually dead and raise them to new life in Christ. And so all of us as the church, as we come together, we are a redeemed people because of the work of Jesus Christ in us and forgiving us from our sins. And we see that this comes from God in chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6 are a little bit different. So chapters 1 through 3 are dense and packed with theology and this truth about God. And chapters 4 through 6 are the applications of what you do in response to who God is. And so we see in chapters 4 through 6 what we would call the ethics of this book or what we are supposed to do in light of the characteristics of God. And so we see this... Um, foundation laid out in chapter 5, where Paul says in the initial verse to be imitators of God as beloved children. And then in verse 2, he says that you and I are to walk in love. So in response to God, who God is and what he is like, we're going to be imitators of him, and then we're also going to walk according to him. And specifically, how to walk in love. And so chapters five through six, they're all interconnected. And you're going to see over the next few weeks, 
how there's one singular thread of how to walk in love, this manner of following in the example of Jesus, you're going to see how it affects all different areas of life. In chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see how to walk in love when it comes to our personal integrity and purity, our marriages, our children and parenting them, and much more. And so how do you walk in love according to verse 1 and 2? He starts off by discussing purity. And so I want us to begin here with this opening note, if you're a note taker. This is where we're going to begin. I want you to know that sexual sin is serious. That sexual sin is serious. He says in verses 3 and 4, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And so right here, in this walk with love, he describes some of the things that hinder this walk of love. And he goes to this very specific topic, where he talks about sexual sin or sexual immorality. This word sexual immorality, this phrase, it comes from this word porneo where we get the word pornography. And he's speaking here of this array of sins that regard sexual nature to them in verse 3. He says this impurity, the opposite of being pure in Christ, that comes from immorality, this covetousness, and a sexual manner desiring someone outside the context of marriage. What you will notice is how serious he speaks of this issue. He says this sin, sexual immorality, covetousness, impurity, these things must not even be named among you, according to verse 3. He said it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Why would Paul say such a thing? Why would he say this in comparison to lying or stealing or something else? Why would he say that sexual immorality must not even be named among you. Well, what you will notice is in this particular sin and in this particular manner, he says this because of how powerful and how serious this sin is. And sexual sin is different from other sins. Not that one is punishable more than the other in terms of the grand scheme of sin, But it's different. Paul explains this in his letter to the Corinthians. If you're a note taker, I just want you to mark this down. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 through 20. This is what it says. Paul writes to the church of Corinth. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, Paul reminds the church of Corinth that their bodies are not their own. And not only that, but their bodies are temples. Remember, In the Old Testament, where would the Holy Spirit dwell? Where would he reside? He would reside in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would 
go in and there the presence of the Lord would be. But in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down in chapter 2, and he no longer indwells the tabernacle, but he lives inside you and I. The believers, the church, and you and I become temples of God. And so, when we say that God truly lives within us, it is indeed true. Because we know that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us because our bodies are a temple. And so sexual sin is different because it's in this that we sin against our own bodies, these temples defiling them, desecrating them with sin that is immoral. And instead of glorifying God with our bodies, we glorify ourselves, living for what we would want in a body that was purchased by Christ through his blood through his own sacrifice. It takes this ransom and defiles it. That is why it's so serious. He goes on saying, let there be no filthiness, verse 4, foolish talking, crude joking to dwell, but instead to give thanksgiving. Alongside of sexual sin, it's important to consider what you say to others, particularly in regard to this subject. Do you make light of these subjects, joking about them, antagonizing others about them, talking foolishly about them? He implores you to stop because of the seriousness of the issue at hand. He said we shouldn't be a coarse, joking, filthy people, but instead a people who are full of thanksgiving and gratitude towards God. He says in verse 5, and this is where he moves deeper into his argument. He says that you could be sure of it. Everyone, and don't miss this in verse 5, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, verse 5, says has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now as we read that, my suspicion is that makes many people uncomfortable. And it should. Understand the weight of what Paul is saying here. He's saying for those who live bound to sexual sin, who show that they are hinged to these sins, they do not go to heaven. But they burn in hell. That is what he is saying right here. Well, pastor... Are you saying that as a believer, if I commit a sexual sin, that I'm going to lose my salvation and go to hell? No, that's not what I'm saying. But here is the angle of what Paul is teaching. I want you to listen very, very carefully to me. This is what he's communicating next in your notes. That an unrepentant sinner is an unsaved sinner. We see that sexual sin is dangerous, but next we see that an unrepentant sinner is an unsaved sinner. Now listen, we know with certainty that if you are in Christ, you are absolutely saved. Without hesitation, without doubt, with full assurance, you can know with certainty that as the sun rises in the morning, you know with certainty that you will rise with Christ one day. We have that confidence in Jesus' name. But what he is saying here is that those who are unrepentant are the ones who are unsaved. 
You have to listen to me on this. There is no such thing as an unrepentant Christian. It doesn't exist. He communicates this. Notice how he says it. That's what's so important here. How am I coming to this conclusion? Think about how he says it. He says right here, if you are sexually immoral, verse 5, if you are impure, that it is the core of who you are, that you have no inheritance in Christ because you are not in Christ. You are in slavery to that sin. When we think about our identities, we like to come up with different ways to let the world know who we are. And one of the ways we do that is usually through our social media platforms. And we do that with a bio. We'll have this description of, of, of what we want people to see about us. And so that's a, a formulation of our identity in the culture. And what he is saying here, he is not talking about a genuine Christian who's struggling. He is talking about someone who is lost in their sin and the foundation, the essence of who they are is their sinfulness because they are so ingrained into it. See, here is the difference. It's like, you may be asked, well, how do you know? Like, am I a Christian that's just struggling with sin or am I someone that's genuinely lost? Because Paul is not bipolar on his decision making. So how do you know? Consider this. Do you love your sin or do you hate your sin? Is Christ your Lord or is Christ a band-aid for your guilt? When you sin, do you genuinely feel remorse over it? Because that's how the Lord feels about your sin. Or do you feel bad because you got caught? Do you see the difference there? See, the genuine, the true Christian hates their sin, remorses over their sin, and follows Christ as Lord apart from them. Apart from this, we see that they have him as their true master, a true Lord, where someone lives in submission to him. But for those outside of Christ, they live in submission to sexual sin. And when they consider the weight of this, they are truly unrepentant, not being someone who turns away from their sin. When we think about that idea of repentance, repentance is this 180 where you turn away and you walk away from sin. And so the question here is, are you someone who is repenting of sin? Or are you someone who has never done so? This is the defining marker. Because he says the sexually immoral, the impure, the covetousness, this is their identity because they are not in Christ. This is how they are described. So let's not fool ourselves. Going to church is not what saves you, nor is marginally sinning less. The only means by which you and I are saved is by faith in Jesus Christ and truly repenting of sin, having a life in which you are committed to killing sin. And so hear me on this. I couldn't give you a stronger warning. If you are in sexual sin as a believer, the word, the desire of the Lord for you today is to stop, like right now. And for some outside of Christ, your eternity weighs in balance. Because he says the sexually immoral, the covetousness, those who are without Christ, who are unrepentant, 
there is no inheritance for them in the kingdom of God. The strongest warning Paul could give in light of this issue. What I want you to see following this is not only do we see that sexual sin is serious and the unrepentant uh, sinner is an unsafe sinner, the next thing I want you to see is that sexual sin is dangerous because sexual sin is deceitful. Paul makes this argument in verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says that when it comes to sexual sin, when it comes to the nature of these things, there is an intense level of deceit to lead people astray, to fool them, to trick them. And they're thinking maybe it's not as severe, not as dangerous. But sexual sin is dangerous because sexual sin is deceitful. He says, let no one fool you about this. I thought about it like this. A few weeks ago, I was driving to the grocery store in, uh, in, in Mid-City, Huntsville. And I was heading to Mid-City. Uh, I passed by a restaurant that all of us pass by if you go up and down, and it's called Twin Peaks. You probably didn't think I was going to talk about this today, did you? And I'll explain what that is in a moment, if you don't know what that is. But on the back side of their building, if you look at it, they have this sign. And the sign says, eat, drink, and scenic views. That's what it says. Now, if you do not understand that specific phrase, the phrase scenic views is a euphemism. It's one to describe the women, the, the workers at Twin Peaks, who would be scantily dressed, intentionally prepared to lure and entice specifically men to come and eat and drink as they look upon them and gaze upon them, to lust after them, to draw them in and fantasize over them. And I saw that sign, and the messaging, the implications of that sign are interesting. Bold letters publicly declared, hey, come dine with us. We have great food and we have great drinks. And on top of that, look at these women. Think about them. Look at whoever you want. There's nothing wrong. It's just a scenic view. Just like when you go into nature, you go to the mountains and enjoy the sight. Come in here and look at these waitresses. See what you like. Not only is it okay, but it's encouraged. Everyone does it, right? Brother, that is not a scenic view. That is a woman, a real person, made in the image of God, having her dignity taken away at the expense of man, taking honor and degrading it just into a view or an image is what they would say. And for whatever reason they may believe to be true to be there, or just the circumstance in which they work there, this is not a scenic sight. It's not a scenic view. It's deception. It's deception in a culture that says it's good. And it makes me angry to think that someone convinced them or worse, tricked them into working there. It makes me angry that men go there to exploit the image and dignity and value of these women. It makes me sad for those workers. It makes me feel all kinds of things. 
And the deception underneath there is that there's nothing wrong here. No sin here. It's normal. Is it right? Does it feel good? Is it legal? Is it normalized? Absolutely. Therefore, there's nothing to be found bad found there. But no. It's a deception. And it is a lie to take the truth of what God has declared about men and women being made in his image and diluting it down to fill sinful desires, lusts, and passions of the flesh. That is the truth. I read that sign and all I could think about was the passage from Proverbs where Solomon writes, For at the window of my house I look through my lattice and I've seen among the simple, I have perceived among the east, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, willy of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay home. And now in the street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait, and she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to the young man, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. And so now I've come out to meet you and to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Verse 19, for my husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey, and he took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. And then verse 21, Solomon writes this. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, and he does not know that it will cost him his life. Listen, folks. Sexual sin may appear fine. It may feel fine. But for some in the end, it leads to death. A gate to Sheol. And that's how serious this deception is. Now you may be thinking, well, thank goodness that I don't go eat at Twin Peaks. But let's get real for a second. You may not be eating there or wherever and joke about people who do. But in the same thought, folks will substitute a trip to Twin Peaks for a night in darkness in the privacy of their own bedrooms with limitless accessibility and indulgence of internet pornography on their phones. One thing may be in person, but folks don't even need that when they have the world at their fingertips. What is the deception there? That no one sees that. No one knows viewing these videos and images of others. I'm not actually, you're not actually with those people. You may not actually be with them in person. It doesn't matter. But what do we see here? This is deception. And that those who are unrepentant, those who fall into this deception, the wrath of God is poured out on them. The way he finishes that verse in verse 6 is he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Listen to me, guys. You have to understand the full image of God here. 
that indeed one of the characteristics of God is that he is just. He does not let sin go unpunished. It will be paid for. And without Christ, it will be paid with an eternity in hell. This is how serious this subject is. Sexual sin is dangerous because sexual sin is developed, is deceitful. So, what do we do? What should you do? In line of a passage like this, I need you to hear me here. The one thing that I want you to see today, and we're going to see how Paul addresses this even further on into the, into the next sermon next week. But the first thing, the main thing that I want you to see today is this. What are we to do? You are to flee from sexual immorality. Simple. You are to flee from sexual immorality. If you're here and you wrestle with sexual sin, you must flee from it. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, that's what he urges the church of Corinth, to flee from sexual immorality. He's going to address steps and things to do next week in the sermon next week, but for now, I want you to flee from it, to repent of any sinfulness and flee from the dangers of sexual sin. Here's what that means for some of you. It means not just limiting your phone, but it means completely demolishing every possible way to view any explicit image, any form of pornography, any form of temptation. Not being willing to go to rest knowing that you can access something in just a moment. It means choosing in your relationships not to live together, not to stay the night, not to stay up late in a dating relationship or engaged relationship. It means leaving certain genres of music away from particular shows or movies and taking captive every thought. Generally, when folks come to me for counsel on what to do about particular areas of sexual sin, it's not that they don't know what to do. It's that they don't want to give it up because it has rooted itself so deeply in the minds and hearts of individuals. When I suggest downgrading phones or giving up shows or even relationships, that can seem too far. But is it? Is that too radical? If you've wrestled with sexual sin for five years, 10 years, 20 years or more, is it too much to suggest radical measures when it comes to fleeing from sexual immorality? It is dangerous <coughs> because it's deceptive. And it has tricked millions into believing that if you go just the bare minimum, you will be fine. When in fact, it is one of the most difficult battles that young men and women older men and women face in their lives is deceptive. And when it comes to fleeing, it should be taken with the highest degree of seriousness. We flee from sexual immorality. So, as we consider this, and I know this wasn't the most joyful sermon you wanted to hear at the beginning of the new year, and I apologize for that, but the ultimate answer to this, the need and the help that you will find. It's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, this past week, since we were stuck at home for so long, we had to deliberate, like, well, what, what should we do with all of this time? We're stuck on this couch. We feel like we can't move. And obviously, the wise decision is to watch every single Harry Potter movie. 
And so uh, we successfully completed that task yesterday and then the 20-year special because it was awesome. And if you're like anti-Harry Potter, I'm so sorry. We can talk about it this week. <laughs> but in those movies, and the way I know this because we literally just watched all of them, is that if you watch each movie, each one of them, it progressively gets colder and darker. And so the opening movie has this like warm, vibrant, you know, these autumn-ish colors. They're warm and inviting. But each movie that goes on, it gets colder and off-putting. And the deeper you go into the movies, and because what's happening is that they're intentionally showing the effects of darkness as it grows. And sin has a similar effect on you and I. That the deeper in, the more vivid you see the effects it has on all of mankind. Even as someone matures in Christ, they notice even more over time their old selves, their old ways, their fleshly desires. And at the end of the movies, at the end of Harry Potter's journey, when Voldemort is defeated, the darkness is vanquished at the end. Immediately, this is what you see. You see the sun come out. You see the sun come out. The warm embrace begins to fill the area. And the peace that you saw in the first movie, the warm, inviting embrace that you see of Hogwarts and the friendships, all of that begins to return. See, sexual sin has a way of keeping folks in the dark, cold and alone. But the gospel has a healing effect on you. Where you look around and you see the warm, restoration of Jesus Christ in all areas of life around you. It takes what you used to be. And the good news reminds you that you are no longer a slave to sin, but now you have been made new. You've been made a son or daughter in Christ. That you're no longer alone. You're no longer without hope, without God in the world, but you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And you feel his warm embrace as the sun shines once again in a dark room. That you do not have to tread on your own, but he draws you up from the pit of destruction. He sets your feet upon a rock, making you steps secure. Psalms 40. See, we have this because of who Christ is and what he did on the cross. It's possible to walk in love. It's possible to be free from sexual sin. It is possible to be abundantly secure and joyful in Jesus because he offers all of this through his death and resurrection. So what are you waiting for? You want freedom from sin? You need to come to Jesus today. If you want a new life to be forgiven of sin, shame removed, darkness gone, a Father who will walk with you through the challenges of this particular sin, come to Jesus. Do you want to have the warm embrace of an eternal family, a Father who loves brothers and sisters who care for you? Come to Jesus as He will meet you and provide for you in the most intimate of ways and the most deep of needs so that you'll be satisfied in Him alone. See, these sexual sins, these sexual cravings and desires that people feel, they are hunger cries for more of God. And Christ himself will fill you if you will come to him. As the old hymn says, you come to this fountain so rich and sweet 
Cast thy poor soul at thy Savior's feet. You plunge in today and you will be made complete. Glory to his name. God is with you through this, brothers and sisters. He will lead you through it as the shepherd leads others through the valley of the shadow of death. Cling to him and walk in love as Christ did for you. If you are here, and I know that from this, there are probably many conversations that need to be had or want to be had. Just know that we as a church are here for you, and we will walk with you through these valleys if you will allow us the opportunity to do so. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus and you need this hope today, his love is here for you. I want to invite you to accept it and to trust in Christ today. Let's pray.